you know, for the first time in mm. our entire relationship, I just saw your face. <laughs> he looked up into the light. <laughs> yeah, you looked up into the light. Like, I saw that you had a face. Yeah. You're not just like a, a shrouded in mystery guild member. That's right. Yeah, hopefully. I want you to know that uh, a part of the, the fun of editing the podcast is going through the stuff like this and then just snipping it out of context and putting it at the end of the podcast. Mm. Or at the beginning, like uh, I noticed yeah. the other day. <laughs> yeah. I have fun with episode structure. Go team venture! Brothers. Gary, nobody cares about the Venture Brothers. People care. Well, just be quiet. All right, fine. People really need to know this stuff. Welcome out, ladies and gentlemen, to another exciting episode of Conjectural Technologies, a Venture Industries podcast. I am your host, Brock Savage. With me, as always, is my longtime companion, Beast Lamode. Hi, gang. How's it going? And we are joined by our favorite sentient killing machine of artificial construction, RoboBob. Hello, folks. It sounds so organic. <laughs> oh, it's so impressive. Today, we have an exciting episode in store for you, and it is the first of several in our Brock block. I know you were waiting for this, and... The time has come. It has crept up on you in the darkness, stark naked, covered in blood, with a knife dripping in blood, clenched between its teeth. With a black box over its stuff. (laughs) With a black box over its tongue. So, go ahead, Bob. I was actually uh, created with a black box. I just wanted to let you guys know that. (laughs) It's the it's the one you live in that only Beast Lamode and I appear in. Like, okay, so fun fact. Uh, if I am in the middle of, like, acquiring my guild hours for my application, it looks like Bob is on the council of 13. Like, Robo Bob is almost just silhouette. <laughs> right. And I want We're, you to go yeah, ahead like, and, like, we have to, like, announce there is a difference. Uh, Robo Bob... Is is the friendly version, and then Bob is actually like the short version of Bob Nine Thousand, cousin to Hal. Um, their Thanksgivings are very awkward because mostly they don't eat and they don't. They're not thankful. Right. <laughs> I'm afraid I can't let you have any turkey, Robo Bob. <laughs> right. It's coming at you. It's coming at you hard. So. Uh, like a spot monkey. And a fun fact about this episode um, that we are actually about to cover here, um, it's actually uh, right around, it, with, without kind of getting into it, um, it is the Scooby-Doo referential episode, and we are happening, you know, we happen to be recording this right around the time uh, the new Scooby-Doo movie is being released, Scoob. 
um, which is again in that unique set of features that is, uh, you know, it was made for theaters, but released straight to home. And uh, if you are interested, Comixology is throwing at you like 200 and something plus like Scooby-Doo comics. And they're all like really great team ups like Plastic Man, uh, Blue Falcon, um, Harlem Globetrotters, of course. Like it wouldn't be a Scooby-Doo Dude, team that up. that Scooby-Doo, that Scooby-Doo and Lobo team up, I was not prepared for. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, oh, that'd be great! Uh, I can. I I smell sequel. <laughs> so in my mind, that's probably not always. Smell. Well, I was gonna say in my mind, I hear just like I hear him just pull the trigger, and then Scooby and like I'm not going to attempt this impression, but Scooby Doo saying, "I'm not going to pull the trigger, man. Not for all the Scooby snacks." <laughs> right. You know, I so I actually had the great pleasure of seeing Bob Dylan in concert. Wow. And I don't know whether it was that day or if it was all the LSD, <laughs> but that man sounded so much like Scooby-Doo in concert that I really enjoyed that concert. It's tangled up in blue. <laughs> <laughs> I don't see why the two things have to be have to be mutually exclusive. Uh, dude, it was it was very special. It was very special, much like this episode. And this particular episode, opening up our Brock block, is going to be our first entry, our initial foray into the mind, motivations, mannerisms, and other M words of our favorite Swedish murder machine. And this episode was picked out by none other than our very own Robo Bob. And Robo Bob, if you could take a moment to just explain what makes this episode so crucial to our understanding of Brock Samson. Sure. Um, this episode is uh, uh, Viva Los Muertos. And in it, <clears throat> excuse me, in it, uh, this episode is uh, Viva Los, Mu Los Muertos. And in it, we actually get to see inside Brock Sampson's head. We get to see his viewpoint. We get to see his effects on others. But we really get to know who he is as a person, as, as kind of he gets to know another side of himself. Um, and I think that's very powerful. That was one of the reasons I picked this show, because it's really, it's not all about Brock, but it's all about Brock. So... Uh, this episode is season two, episode 11. It first aired on October 1st of 2006 and shares a unique distinction in that this, is, uh, this episode is written in its entirety by tech creator Ben Edlund and is the only episode in the entire series not written by Doc Hammer or Jackson Public. Yep. One other note, uh, just to give you an idea about how canny beast Lamode is we were talking uh and we were talking about which episodes we wanted to pick for our brock block uh i had mine picked out a while ago uh beast Lamode was kind of bouncing around with a couple of these like well i'm I, if i know anything about robo bob he's going to pick viva los muertos yep. like and if, if if i'll pick whichever one he doesn't pick implying that there were only three that we could choose. <laughs> <laughs> and he had you pegged so hard. I mean, it was like, uh, it, it was like, it was like, watch, it was like uh, Thanksgiving 
for a Scientologist over at John Travolta's house. <laughs> so what, we, what we're looking at now is the, your inner thoughts made manifest through this episode, Rubble Bob, and we are super excited to join you on this journey. Well, <clears throat> well thank you. Um, what I saw basically, you know, what we all see is we start out through another character who's not Brock. Excuse me, I was uh, getting an oil change and uh, some oil got moved around here. Hang on one sec. <coughs> Apparently there. he was at Thanksgiving over at Joshua's right. house. Oh. Got a little something in your throat there. Tales too ticklish to tell. <laughs> <laughs> um. <laughs> um, so just well, to uh, that, that's a note of, uh, that, that's going to be the title of RoboBob's book of poetry. <laughs> right. isn't that true um anyway um in this episode we meet uh a young minion of the monarch a henchman for the monarch uh named texas and we learned that because we see things through his viewpoint early on um we see him and uh our favorite two henchmen 21 and 24 storming the venture compound and guess who they run into right away I, I mean, I would assume, uh, like, some sort of walking <laughs> with fruit baskets. Uh, the walking eye. The walking, that's a, it's Helper. No, uh, it's Brock Sampson. And uh, he's doing what he does best. And uh, can, we, uh, can, can we just pause for a moment yeah. and reflect on how awesome the setup for this is? Oh, it is. We're looking from Texas's viewpoint. He's looking at 24 and 21. And it's like it's putting you in the head of this guy who's getting ready to make his first charge on the venture compound. Yep. And he's got his little wristwatch <clears throat> and the monarch appears and gives what I can only describe as a not particularly enervating <laughs> speech. Like 21 and 24 are like we're talking to each other like, why are you talking to the new guy? You know he's not going to make right. it. Right. Uh, <laughs> well, uh, what I loved about the whole thing was uh, you, you get a couple of really fun um, big budget references there. Like, obviously, the, the whole first person and a bunch of the, you know, kind of revivals that happen um, is, a, is a pretty good reference to RoboCop. <laughs> um, also, like, you get the, yeah. the line, you know, stay frosty. Um, mm -hmm. yeah. alien. Um, also, I love that uh, Henchman 21 and 24 are trying to smoke during the mission. <laughs> yeah, smoke, smoke them if you can. Yeah, and they're bad at smoking. Like, they don't do it often. <laughs> yep. You can hear them coughing in the background. Now, and uh, like a bunch of high schoolers. If you look around, um, you'll notice some of the reoccurring henchmen, um, namely some of the gentlemen that were recruited in Hate Floats. Oh, good catch. And also, uh, while I'm thinking about it, uh, something we need to go ahead and kind of uh, put a, a little uh, asterisk on. Um, we had said that uh, in The Doctor of Sin that that was Killinger's second appearance. Actually, his third. Killinger uh, oh. appeared in I Know Why the Cage Bird Kills. And that's why he's officiating the wedding. So that was his third appearance. So we're going to mend that move on. Um, but yeah, so uh, that was a subtle call out um, that becomes like, uh, you know, with the uh, the hate floats and and having the the you know other henchmen that they had recruited, um, you know, not like in in one of his like you know deficits of of you know money, I suppose. Uh, 
And it comes back as one of the best jokes in the series, in my opinion. Um, so we'll get there. I'll point that out. All right. So uh, we're going to go ahead and back up and kick ourselves in high gear as we take a look at the death of poor <clears throat> Texas, who has gone in with the distraction horde, uh, the fluttering butterflies of by the thousands, nay, the millions, uh, attempting to obscure the approach of a the mighty horde, push but of it butterflies. does not work. Yes, yes, a mighty push. That's exactly what I think of when I think of butterflies. So they are on their way in, but things quickly go from okay to not okay. Because who does he run into before too long? None other than Brock Samson. Who is in the middle. By the way, can we talk about how Brock is killing the guys when Tex sees him for the first time? He's got one guy up against the wall and he's holding a lawnmower to his <laughs> chest. <laughs> he's strangling the other guy. Uh, and then he turns his attention to Tex. Tex, not being an idiot, starts to run. But he is not faster than Brock. No. And he doesn't make it too far before soon he is no longer looking away from Brock. He's looking back at Brock and what's behind him because his head has been twisted around you can hear the crunch of bone. my favorite thing and is seeing body falls, my favorite thing is seeing brock's fingers wrap around the first person perspective <laughs> right before, like, back around to him like dude there is such a commitment to detail in this podcast like even the backgrounds are just freaking amazing oh yeah. uh who is that Annie, uh, what, what's her name annie woo annie, annie woo, woo. Uh, Annie, yeah, we're, we're definitely going to touch on her a little bit more uh, once we kind of put together the uh, the art episode of uh, Learning Bed, um, just to make sure I'm, I'm crediting her in the proper episodes. Um, I'm a huge Matt Fraction fan, um, and he did a run on Hawkeye, and like the back half of his run was illustrated by a um, lovely artist named Annie Wu, who is just incredibly multifaceted, and she does a lot of the matte paintings um, of the show. Um, you know, the background mats, and they are just incredibly detailed. Uh, when she paints furniture in, she goes through like a Sears catalog from the 1950s. Like, it's all like, you know, very uh, mid century specific on purpose, like, just great detail work. It's amazing. And you find that level of detail throughout the entire series. And we get a whole lot of detail when Texas's head is spun around. Because all of a sudden he's realizing he is no Captain America. That is not America's ass. No, no, no. no. That is the last moments of his life fading before him. Or is well, it? and that's okay. Well, Here's my thing: is you come up over the ridge and you're confused, caught in this flurry of butterflies yourself. And then once the butterflies clear, you realize you're standing too close to it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's like running through the woods and then like straight up wily coyote off the cliff <laughs> yeah no yeah that's pretty much it i just wanted to say too i really like the level of detail as uh texas is dying <clears throat> his uh his eyes his pupils must be dilating because as he's closing his eyes the lights are growing brighter and brighter so it's this you know this this entering into the brightness as everything goes dark and his eyes closed for what would seem to be the final time. 
Well, and you you realize like with like the the whole scope of the show now, he's not one of the lucky ones, right? If you're lucky in the Witcherverse, <laughs> you'll go into a coma first, where you get to have this crazy like Barbarella Star Wars shared extreme <laughs> space with people. Apparently, right. death in the Adventureverse is pretty is pretty atheist in structure. Like it's it's kaput, done. Like he did not <laughs> have to go. You know, go straight to coma. I see you for two. No, he didn't have the light flashing nope. before his eyes. He didn't get to talk to Nana one more time. It was just lights dimming out, camera, you know, out of focus, powering down. And lights, uh, camera, a fraction of light <laughs> that you were used to. Yeah. So, uh, what we've got now is poor dead Tex. But is that where we leave off? No, no. Suddenly we hear, we see nothing new, just total darkness after the credits. But then we hear Dr. Venture's voice crying for more power. I must have more power. And uh, look, Brock, his fingers, they're twitching. And the next thing you know, uh, he starts to open his eyes. And uh, we see Doc and Brock Sampson leaning over him. And we see a mirror, and uh, Texas gets to get a look at himself for the first time since dying, since leaving the mortal, shedding the mortal coil. And he's not too happy about it, so he goes to uh, start strangling Doc, like any sane person would do. Uh, and and then, um, then Brock just uh, beats him to death again with a fire extinguisher extinguisher <laughs> well so wait a minute so he didn't shed the mortal coil he no. just got brought back into a more mortal coil exactly well and i love like brock's immediate reaction to it like doc's like look i created live and he's like yeah well stuff will do that if you put a gigabolt up its ass <laughs> like he's immediately like not right. and almost like this is where you can get the inkling where we're crossing one of the few lines that like Brock Sampson has as an individual, like, you know, he's very uncomfortable with death because he just, he makes so much of it. Like he's like a factory. (laughs) Right. Right. And so then, um, you know, miraculously, or according to Doc Fincher, not so miraculously, um, uh, Tex opens his eyes yet once more, and things are a little different. Um, when he looks in the mirror, uh, or when he when he opens his eyes, the boys come in, and uh, there's a mirror there, and uh, you get a brief glimpse that something's not quite the same. Dude, this section was awesome. This is like, again, like, and this is why the, the henchman from Hate Floats being at the beginning is so important to this like this episode because this joke right here is immaculate yeah why is this why is this head black or why is the it's top not of his bl- head black it's not black it's not black it's ink. african-american <laughs> <laughs> i love the it's like i just needed one that was the right size and I love you know, it's like Brock beat him so hard and gave him an ass. Yeah, when they're talking about it later, like <laughs> it's, it's uh, Brock bad. Brock the direction on it, like Doc Venture uh, playing himself off as PC. First off, 
Yep. And to, so, and to skip ahead a little bit, um, the boys actually are inspired by their father in that moment and uh, go out to find African America. <laughs> yes, they do. <laughs> like, to no avail. Um, yeah. <laughs> right. And that's another learning bed episode we're going to do is the uh, the geography of the Ventureverse. Uh, oh, dude. You know, I, yeah. I thought that map in the opening credits of the first season tells you everything. <laughs> I think it's pretty total. Uh, he's going like full quiz boy, uh, like straight up orb at this. Like yeah. we've been watching these episodes so obsessively now that like we're finding codes that don't mean anything. That's right. <laughs> uh, this is where in the episode we get introduced to our special guest stars, if you will. Uh, the Mystery Machine crew, Mystery Incorporated, so to speak, show up. And it is Ted, Patty, Val, Sonny, and Groove. And uh, it, let's just reflect for a moment on how thematically consistent this whole premise is with the rest of the Ventureverse. In that it takes the idea, what if these people were real and grew up a little bit? And like, how old would you say Ted, the Fred analog is? Well, he, I mean, like mid thirties, early forties, graying around the edges there, and those lines are showing in his face. So I'd say, yeah, he's he's got some middle age on him. No, definitely. Yeah, and then and then we've got Patty, who looks like she's she's a hard luck woman, worn thin, yeah, and vacant. Well, like she's like a yeah. husk of a woman walking around. Yeah, like it's kind of like uh, you know who she reminded me of. I forget who it was. Meryl one of the episodes that... dipped in wax and having to be nice to everybody at the party <laughs> and walked around having to be nice to everybody at the party. Yeah, kind of, kind of. Uh, in one of I forget which episode it is, but there's that like older waitress, like just looks like it had echoes yeah. of her. Um, and then we've got Val who is clearly Valerie Solanas, <laughs> mm-hmm. the one who shot Andy Warhol, uh, and just like s- s- quoting lines of the scum manifesto. Well, and I love that uh, uh, and- in, in the Ventureverse, in my mind, now that we have an established Andy Warhol proxy, somewhere in the Ventureverse past, past like Val has like gut shotted like Wes Warhammer somewhere in his career. <laughs> <laughs> right yep well do you think he would have let her get that close like he probably didn't get it because as soon as she walked up he'd be like your ideas are so fascinating tell me about your childhood right. <laughs> well and what's really interesting about uh the, the real andy warhol situation of course he didn't die from the the gunshot wound immediately um he lived in pain and and you know with a lot of complications for um you know some years after that i want to say it was like eight twelve years um, but he actually died from complications, you know, from like health complications from the gunshot wound. So it was oh, wow. like an immediate thing, like, you know, she eventually got him. Whoa. Yeah. She did to him what Andy did to the art world. <laughs> oh, ow. ow. I like Andy Warhol. Or maybe I like Campbell's Soup. Too- I don't know. <laughs> <That's> right. <laughs> well, and also, uh, like, while we're doing the 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 dossier like let's let's give it the full rundown um so uh the good folks at mantis i speculated that ted was like a a cult leader david koresh type 
Um, but in the, the venture verse Bible here, the go team venture by uh, the wonderful Mr. Ken Plume, um, the interview that uh, you read for the episode actually tells you that they're, you know, he's, he's Ted Bundy. Um, and Pat- Oh, really? That makes sense. Yeah. In the, in the director's commentary too, I think uh, Jackson public dropped that he was Ted Bundy as well. So, right. Yeah. Uh, there were a couple of things like I honestly viewed Ted cause this episode came out in 2006. Yeah. And when you kind of look at what was going on, like when I saw this episode for the first time, I did not immediately associate him with Ted Bundy. I associated him with the mindset that had just dragged us into Iraq. <laughs> and oh, wow. Right. Like I, I read him as an analog for people who uh, like, we're doing some things that are really not very good, but it's because God wants us to do them. Oh yeah. There's right? a big heavy religious element in that. Um, I heard in the commentary, I didn't get to see it this time in the episode, but maybe you guys did. Apparently in the back of their van, there is a box that's large enough for a person to fit in. And it's apparently painted on the box is the word redemption. It's the redemption box that, that Ted actually threatens <laughs> to put Patty That's, back in. Yeah. Whoa, whoa, whoa. And, oh, and uh, dude, that line being out of your box isn't a right. It's a privilege. Oh, it, no. Okay. So, is the redemption box like the prayer closet outside of your house, Professor Savage? <laughs> right. Yes. Yeah. I have been like it. Yeah. The, it is. It is pretty much like the prayer closet that fits in the back of your your van. Mm. Uh, one other little note here about the uh about the the arc and the dynamic is that uh there is a dog and dogs can often bring peace dogs can often bring have a calming and soothing effect but that is not the effect that this dog do uh can i do uh, can i do a groovy is having on our resident hippie sunny Could, could i quote him real quick um please do yours is the wheel of blood yours is the sword of michael <laughs> <laughs> and uh, um i didn't pick up pick and, up on this until i was doing the research for this episode so sunny and groovy's relationship is of course a reference to uh david berkowitz and his dog and david berkowitz was the son of sam the son of sam sunny of sam ah mm-hmm. uh, wow mm-hmm. No, I don't. Uh, real quick, if if like if this is all the case, it, like every single one of these people is a serial killer. Who is Patty? Oh no, to she's be? Patty Hearst. She's Pat- yeah. <gasps> oh snap! And they actually did put her in a closet for quite a, a while in her uh, uh, captivity there. And I mean, it, wow! It, it, oh, dude, and that line: "We're on our way to see our. To, we're on our. Way, we're, we're gonna go see your parents. We're just gonna stop here for. I've been on. To, we've been going to see my parents for ten years. Yeah. <laughs> well, and it totally, <laughs> um, it, essentially, like it. It's the one person. First off, they've you know referenced uh, Patty Hearst in the the Brisby episode. Um, you know what? Did you turn it yeah. all the way up to Patty Hearst? Because it's brainwashing, right? <laughs> and she was brainwashed by the Syrian yeah. government. Um, which yeah. completely explains like her fugue state, um, you know, kind yeah. of just walking around like, what are we doing? Why are we doing this? Yeah, Stockholm like, syndrome. Yeah. You know, um, 
like I said, you know, being the, the husk of a woman, like she's mentally broken um, because, you know, what with all the, the Syrian brainwashing. Well, just yeah. like the, the Symbionese Liberation Front. Now, I was noticing, did, speaking of like good backgrounds and stuff, did you guys get a look at that van? Um, it was a real good take on the mystery machine because the beat up old blue van actually had only been painted with one can of green spray paint. And they painted a flute, a few flowers on it. And then they painted a ghost, which uh, that might be relevant in a little bit. And then on the back, they actually wrote, uh, and it's barely legible, but it says the groovy crew and crew is spelled C-R-O-O, just like Scooby-Doo. Yeah. Ah, nice. Well, and uh, I will say that that is like Ted's little connection to, to Manson um, is very yeah. much like the, uh, you know, obviously like deranged cult leader, um, but yeah. also like, you know, taking advantage of, you know, essentially the free love movement. Like, here's the thing I love about Scooby-Doo. Um, and in particular about this episode is some of the tropes you just you let slide and don't think about. We have yeah. zero idea how these people got together, but because the cartoon came about in the, the 70s, you assume that, you know, Fred and Daphne and Velma were on a trip and maybe they picked up Scooby hitchhiking, like, you know, Scooby and Shaggy hitchhiking. You know, uh, like, it, it definitely comes from a more freewheeling, like, you know, uh, you can pick up a stranger on the side of the road or roll straight up into this weird mystery and everything's going to be okay time. Dude, that was totally what happened back then. So uh, the first Scooby-Doo aired in uh, 1969, right? Yeah. And uh, what was it? October. Um, so essentially that during that time period, two years before that. Uh, so that was uh, aired right after Woodstock, right? It aired, I think, just before the moon landing. And uh, two years before that was the Monterey Pop Festival, right? Uh -huh. And my dad hitchhiked from Wilmington, North Carolina to the Monterey Pop Festival, caught the concert, and then hitchhiked back. Wow. That was a thing you could do then. Wow. Right? So uh, you might not be far off beast because you know maybe they were just palling around maybe like 1969 they picked him up they were driving through upstate new york and like oh looks like you've got a lost hippie and his dog and a bookworm right well <laughs> and uh one of the 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 versions i actually think that kind of nails it on the head uh is uh the kevin smith parody in oh, yeah. the bob strike back you know you've got fred the the fred version of you know, it's uh, wait, was it uh, William C. Scott, you know, uh, playing guitar and like, you know, you've got the girls and all that stuff. And so I kind of see that like Fred doesn't see this hippie as a as a threat because he's the handsome, like all American type. But clearly he's got, you know, these liberal inclinations and this sweet ride that he just painted all groovy like, you know, his parents aren't around. So they're going to have some Scooby snacks now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, speaking of Scooby snacks, we get to our Sean groovy pills, our, our groovy you know, treats. I'm sorry. Wait, yeah, you, you said Willard Scott. No, I was I, gonna like William D. Scott. <laughs> like, and I, that's somebody else. Like, yeah, sorry, Stifler. My bad. If you listen to this podcast, uh, please promote it. You're much more famous than we are. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> free the ficus, bro. Um, so 
essentially what we've got is uh, Ted offering groovy treats to Sonny in order to help him find clues to a mystery. And the mystery is what the mystery is. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and this is one of my favorite parts is when they, they point out uh, the, the trope, like, you know, you, you just declared mystery. You're like, you know, Michael Scott <laughs> declaring bankruptcy. You just walk into a room and shout mystery. <laughs> right. Let's go get some clues. Yeah. Yeah. Find me some clues. Here's here's your diet pills. Right. So uh, we bounce back to Venture Stein. And this is actually uh, one of my favorite parts of the episode. And there are so many. Uh, Dean says he likes Venture Stein. And at that point, Doc Venture's like, see, right now Hank's better than you. <laughs> yes. Oh, man, that is harsh. <laughs> that is cold. But that's, I, that's classic Doc. That is classic Doc. And, of course, uh, we, bounce back to, uh, we bounce back to our team. And it, what was it? Uh, he's like, okay, what's the mystery? Uh, they're walking through the barn or the entrance. He's like, okay, what's the mystery? And then Ted starts like, why do you hate God so much? Oh. Well, and, and first off, <laughs> let's backtrack just a bit. How unsanitary is it to have Venturestein at that table right now? and also uh... brock staring down venture stein like really like there's something about venture stein that just bothers brock to his core and he's seen some stuff like he'll like you know they he he even talks about it later like very seldomly do do things get too weird for brock samson but there's just something about being confronted with mortality not even his own some reason other people's (laughs) well and and the fact he, he killed this guy and the guy's back like twice, you know. Yeah. I actually think that that's why Brock is so upset because he's never had something he's killed still there. Right. When you do a like, job, it stays done. Yeah, exactly. Like he he only hits the nail once and it's in. It's <laughs> right. Set. Right. What what are you doing? Like, Stick it out here. Yeah, like something's not correct, and it is unsettling to him. Yep. And of course, we're seeing this off of Venture Stein's perspective. Yeah, and like the oh, the fly. Uh-huh. Ah, that 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 was amazing detail work on that little animation there. Well, and also, okay, so later on down the road, when uh, in season seven, uh, the uh, episode with the problem light, right, and the building is quote unquote haunted. Yep. You know, and when they can't explain it again, like Brock's dealt with ghosts before, but there's something about this that creeps him out. Like there's certain kinds of like just unnaturalness, certain aberrations that happen. He's like, nope, uh uh-uh, sorry, want no part of it. No, (laughs) he was camping outside on the balcony (laughs) when he's freaked out, out enough to go camping like out in the balcony in New York, right? And this is kind of the shades of that. Like, again, Brock doesn't have a whole lot of lines, but clearly something is pressing on them here. Oh, yeah. You know what Brock is pulling? It's like that, uh, what was that, Christopher Reeve episode of South Park, where, like, the rest of the boys are like, I'm staying out of this. (laughs) (laughs) And also, uh, I want to bring up, Uh -uh. do you think the Venture Stein performance is any, uh, like, informed in any way 
by Phil Hartman's Frankenstein on Saturday Night Live. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I never thought of it, but yes, yes. That's true. Hey, um, uh, you know, while they're having breakfast, though, uh, somebody comes in a little bit, and uh, I don't know, it kind of sounded like he came in to brag. Um, Dr. Orpheus shows up and uh, informs uh, Doc that uh, he's going to be having a little soiree that night. And uh, you know, he, he says it was just per their, uh, you know, uh, what is it? Um, per their landlord-tenant agreement. Yes. But I think it was just bragging rights. From five post-Meridian until question marks. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I mean, it's totally the the humble brag. Like, hey, we're having a party. Um, I mean, of course, we could fit you in if you you wanted to come over. You know, drop a little ayahuasca. Learn a little bit about yourself. Explore yourself. (laughs) See the dark side of the moon. about yourself. (laughs) My favorite line of this entire episode is when he's talking to Brock. He's like, I sense your stitched together quilt of your stony silence speaks of a tapestry of quiet desperation. Yo. <clears throat> well, no, actually, my, <laughs> my favorite line follows that not, not long after. Uh, but we two souls have shared a cheese sandwich more than twice. <laughs> Can you say that one more time, Beast? Uh, but we two souls have shared a cheese sandwich more than twice. Yeah, That's... and then we keep getting Brock bad, <laughs> but Doc's excited about what he's saying. Right, they Brock bad. Brock bad is like ah oh, suffix consonants. <laughs> yup, <laughs> these guys love language, and I love it. Yeah, and so then we go back to uh, we go back to uh, Ted, um, Ted and uh, the gang as they're in the other part of the compound, just uh, looking for clues. <laughs> and clues to what and, the mystery and is. they find a clue because actually i wanted to mention this uh do, um uh dr orpheus's exit was a cloud of smoke which was filled with little cloudy skulls and then dissolved into a last big skull and then poof it was gone and i don't know ben edland wrote in an issue of the tick the tick actually finds a comic book called the red eye and it's just laying in the street tick picks it up starts reading and so you start reading this comic book and it's really creepy and scary but it shows the tick in one frame one panel just being surrounded by very similar little skulls and he goes "Ooh, scary and (laughs) i really think that that might have been a nod to uh you know i don't know if that was written into the script or if somebody just knew that and threw them in but uh, it looks very similar to me also uh one thing i want to point out before we keep kind of going on um yeah the retro like scooby-doo sound effects that they throw in for the scooby scenes yeah, uh, like you know the, the 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 bongos for the running and stuff like you get some really classic like foley work um and when you brought up the the orpheus scene um it's actually one of the sound effects i remember uh, a lot from like uh super friends was the do 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 when he like you know mm-hmm. appears um but that yeah. was like one of my favorite parts of the episode is you get a lot of this crazy you know uh very non-childish stuff but then they still put in like the penny whistle slide and the bongo rock <laughs> right yep. 
And as we'll get to later, uh, surfing on a clone slug. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yes, good times. He... Yeah. And so, so, uh, so Ventures, uh, so Doc Orpheus, uh, appears magically outside of the arachnid lab where he lives or, and, uh, and suddenly Ted sees him Whoa. and thinks that they're in a Dracula factory. Okay. Uh, let's back up. Here's my a- question. Who is Alfred Molina and why am I getting his junk mail? <laughs> <laughs> All right. So arachnid research. So this man moved into a lab that was almost exclusively for spiders. I'm sure they hold no fear for him. Well, I mean, I get that. Or he like, holds no fear. For that, him. that is like some goth, like ultra goth stuff. Like, hold up, hold up, hold up. No, no, no. I- I'm actually calling shenanigans on this one because, given Rusty Ventures' attention to detail, do you really think there were any spiders t- still living in there that any research was being done? Well, Hector might have fought. There was, off. there was nothing in that room, which is why he felt comfortable letting it out. I mean, geez, he has an entire dome full of crazed animals on his property that he hasn't been in in 30 I'm not, years. Are you, like, you make a solid point here. Here's my counterpoint. Statistically speaking, you are never more than three feet away from a spider in any like direction. Now, I imagine that a laboratory that used to be just for spiders is probably a little bit higher than that. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but they were all in cages and they weren't getting fed because Rusty Venture can't follow through on anything. Uh, assuming, like, again, you're assuming that, like, containment was a surefire thing that he was working on there. But also, I mean, just, you know, like, it makes sense on some level. Orpheus is like, oh, yeah, Spider Lab. That sounds spooky. Let's do this. Like, that's a great layer. <laughs> right. Yep. And he put a cozy little fireplace in it as well. So what's not to love? Well, and okay. So... And uh, the the faux Scooby group here, the natural like conclusion that Ted comes to is Dracula factory. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely perfect. But the the truth is, no. Originally thought when they met uh, Doctor O. Well, and what I feel like if somebody just told him the truth, it's like, listen, this isn't a Dracula factory. That's a spider lab. <laughs> like, I can sound better to him. Oh, that's better. I'm going to crawl in, in Patty's box. Right. Whoa. Hey. Too soon. <laughs> oh. Because uh. that's uh, very clearly what Val wants to do. But then we, we switch back to Hank and Dean. Oh, yeah, that's right. I, I... <laughs> Hold it. Hold it. We're not there yet. Yeah, that's right. So back to Hank and Dean. Uh, they're in the room now with their learning beds, and they are searching, though, the maps and globes for African America, which they can't find anywhere. So they decide to, well, hey, let's get into the learning beds, Dean suggests. And Hank's like, well, I'm not getting in there with stinky old Venturestein. <laughs> By the way, they, na- they named him at breakfast, I believe. <laughs> yeah. As one does. As one does. Do you and, think uh, Tex was Jewish in real life? Why do you say that? Well, oh, he's Stein. Jewish now. Oh. I'm sorry. Say again. He's Jewish now. Venture Stein. I'm still. You're still cutting out on me. No, no. I'm asking if uh, you know. Do you think Tex was Jewish when he was alive? Oh, proper? Stein. Yeah, because yeah. now he's Venture Stein. Like, did did they seriously just strip his religion? 
<laughs> or are you suggesting that because he might have a Jufro? Uh, that's no, not a Jufro. Well, I mean, was that Sammy Davis Jr.'s fro? <laughs> <laughs> Oh man! No, man. Or, or it could be Portuguese. My, my, uh, my buddy Shada is Portuguese, and he let his grow out, and it was massive. He could stick an entire pencil down into it. It oh, was wow. impressive. Very cool. So there you go. Uh, <laughs> one of the what is uh, so the boys are seeing that something's gone awry. They're gonna go. It's a mystery. One of them's like, "I'll grab the flashlight, and I'll grab the astronaut ice cream." Like, we're going to go on an adventure. There are two things we need. A flashlight yep. and astronaut ice cream. And, of course, what's going on in the video? Well, well, I mean, boy adventurers have to travel light. There are tons of small holes you have to fit through. Like, <laughs> <laughs> you can't, you know, you, you have to have, like, streamlined pockets. and You can't carry around too much. The flashlight doubles like up. Like granola. Would I, yeah, tra trail mix would obviously be too heavy. <laughs> Dean would get stuck on his trail mix anywhere. So, you know, it, you know, it's kind of like you remember the movie The Jerk. Yeah, <laughs> all these cans. <laughs> Somebody hates these cans. So at the end, he's he's getting ready to leave Bernadette Peters, and he's like, "All I need is just this, uh, you know, this thermos and, and this lamp, but that's it. Okay, maybe this, this 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 coffee table. You know, it's just one more thing after another, but but, but that's it." I just need this flashlight, this astronaut ice cream. That's all they need. And this signed picture of Lonnie Anderson. <laughs> <laughs> oh. So what's going on in the video bed? Well, Venterstein is learning all about um, child labor. Uh, and how he could be a, uh, a happy worker uh, in a uh, sneaker factory. Which actually brings me around to the question I want to ask you guys. Um you know, both of like, we're all, we're all fathers. Um, uh, I am Odin. Zing. I was going to say. I am not the, just the all, I, I am the all father. <laughs> no. So uh, what's good about child labor? Uh, well, I, I got to be honest. Uh, if I am looking at the job that my kids do when I assign a, ta assign a task for them, nothing yeah th then that was the exact conclusion i came to <laughs> like when he asked the question he was like what's good about child labor i'm like where are you getting these highly skilled kids but by, by the time i told you how to do it i could have done it myself well and although you know we briefly touched on the way that kids have been treated throughout history like bear in mind uh so my mom was essentially sold off to work for another farmer when she was five. That's wow. when she got her first dress. And she was sold off to work for another farmer. And she worked for him for, I think, seven or eight years yeah. uh, doing like just menial chores. Like, and then the money went to my mom's family. And oh. then, you know, so she'd go, go to school, go, then go work, then come home, sleep, go to school, go to work, come home, sleep. Parents got the money. And then back in the day, that wasn't uncommon. Like even a hundred years ago, you know, 200 years ago, kids, you know, your job as a child was to generate revenue for the family. You like earn it, your keep. Yeah. Like it wasn't until very recently right. that child labor was not acceptable. Like it seems like such a basic thing. Like, oh, of course you don't put a 12 year old in the mines. 
that's a relatively recent perspective on things. Yeah. And now we have a world where middle-aged men can uh, extend their, uh, you know, relive their childhoods well into their 30s. Uh, right you know i I thought you were i thought you were going with a viagra joke there oh sorry (laughs) you know uh the thing that really like uh kind of gets me in terms of like the uh you know treatment of children and stuff um i guess how do you like before child labor how did you get such fine stitching in fabric (laughs) (laughs) i mean only their small hands are capable of producing such tight stitches right (laughs) i had heard somewhere uh my wife read something about like by the time you're a girl was three she was expected to know how to stitch and so oh wow and see like uh my stepdad um definitely came from like that generation like his parents had kids to staff the farm and so like that's how my stepdad had kids but we were moving out of that so we're all like nine years apart like my youngest brother is nine years younger than i am my sister is nine years older than me and my brother my oldest brother is 18 years older like he was dropping him like tool drops albums about once a day (laughs) (laughs) no no was that basically when you outlive your usefulness to the family then you get a new one was that the plan that i mean well bob i yes i you you just hit on something first uh, the the look the look on your face as what bob said hit you was something that i may never forget well and and that's like it's almost he took a break so he was like, you know what? I'm just going to go ahead and like grab one of the like I'm going to grab a step kid to fill in this gap. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I was a different methodology in terms of like the labor force, and he wasn't happy. Like I still can't. Oh, well, I'm sorry. Say that again. Said he's he's still not happy. Like I, like he was, he wasn't happy. Like I still can't wash dishes. Like, you know, going back, (laughs) he tried putting me to work. It didn't work. Yeah. Like (laughs) going back to what's good about child labor. uh, Nothing like I I can get my kids to clean their room for five minutes, let alone like, you know, go into a coal mine. My kids are. Let's be honest. (laughs) Yeah. Let's be honest, though. We're working with a very different like carrot and stick paradigm. Like, if you do a good job and work all day, you get to eat this carrot. If you do a bad job or loaf around, we stick you in the mine and never let you out. <laughs> or in this case, the redemption box. Or next. the redemption box. <laughs> the redemption box. So uh, we get next to Rusty, who's on the phone with General Man Hours. And General Man Hours is asking some interesting questions that we can only hear due to Rusty's responses, which includes, well, yes, I guess they have, be, have great military applications. Uh, I'm not sure how much C4 we could pack into their chest cavities. (laughs) Like all of these little elements are a setup that will pay off in an episode in the future. But my favorite part of this little section right here was Rusty's list. At one point he's like, well, I guess I can check that off my box. Did you read (laughs) Rusty's list? (laughs) Yeah. Holy cow. Like, but let's run through the items on Rusty's list. So, like, I have, thanks to quarantine and my very small two-year-old son, I have seen Monsters Incorporated, Monsters University, I think 80 times today, okay? 
So essentially, uh, there's a section where you see Mike Wazowski's list as he's walking to college. And it's like, you know, uh, go to orientation, get my packet, uh, ace all my classes, become the greatest scarer ever. Right. Like the, the, it ramps up so fast. Like, you know, go to orientation, hang my posters, ace all my classes, become the greatest scarer ever. And it's kind of the same thing with Rusty's list, except there's nothing about hanging posters in Rusty's list. The first item on his list is beat God at his own game. And that's the one he checks. Yeah, off. that's the you only know? one he crosses off because like item number two is like make money. Is get, get money. money. Yeah. yeah. And so he can beat God at his own game, but he can't finance his endeavor. Uh, yeah. Number three, number what? three increase word power (laughs) (laughs) these guys do love language yes they do number four push Push ups (laughs) (laughs) to be fair he could do a few and number five is obscured it's never fully revealed but it seems to say make everything go my way and that's right as he's saying "Hmm, looks like something's finally going my way So maybe he can cross off two things. So, okay. Do you think in his mind that this is a list of things in like, you know, uh, descending order of like, you know, ability to do them? Like, oh, no, no, I can beat God at his own game. I don't know if I can do push-ups today. (laughs) Right. Right. Push-ups are the penultimate hardest thing that he can conceive of. Right. There, there's that old saying, if you've got to swallow a frog, do that first, and then the rest of the day's easy. Uh, that is <laughs> a new saying for me. Oh, well. Uh, to, wh- wh- where did you grow up, RoboBot? Uh, uh, in the factory. I'm sorry, where uh, were you manufactured? In, in the factory by the swamp. And, uh, you know. <laughs> there you go. I, I was going to ask, like, were frogs a pretty consistent part of the menu? Well, you know, they were just available for masticating technology. That's all. Well, and the peculiar <laughs> right. things about like the the pond where RoboBob, like next to the facility where RoboBob was manufactured, uh, that's actually where brick frogs come from. That's there right. you yeah. go. Yes. If you so, can, if if you can swallow, if you can chew up a frog, you can chew up a brick frog. Yeah, if you if you can die, if you can swallow a frog, you can dodge a brick. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Only things I know about is frog being and brick throwing. <laughs> right. Uh, this is so. I'd like to point out that we have spent almost an hour in this episode, this Brock centric episode, and we have barely talked about the man himself. And this next scene is where it really starts getting crucial for our understanding of our favorite Swedish murder machine. Right. Well, Be- I was going to say, if you don't mind, uh, you know, Brock is in the hangar and he's throwing his, he's throwing his knife, uh, just practicing where the knives go. And they're not going anywhere he wants them to. <laughs> practicing where the knives go. N- Not in the knife block. <laughs> like yeah and what i love about that uh when he finally throws the last one hits his radio and he's frustrated you get that great shot of him like glaring with the lightning strike behind his back yeah. um yeah, yeah no that was that was just a wonderful like you know set of frames in the, the animation yep and after a brief flashback to Venturstein breaking out of the bed, you see a shadow on Dr. Orpheus's door. And uh, 
it's Brock. And so he uh, ends up going to uh, to the party. And I, have you ever seen Brock look so sad and just so beaten and defeated as when Byron Orpheus opens that door? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I am so broken as a human being that your party seems like a good idea. <laughs> and, 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 That's like every birthday he, for me. Like, you know, <laughs> dude, that, that I, I, I am so bad at being me right now that the only thing that makes me feel better is being better than the people you've invited to your party. <laughs> you know, I'll Aww. be honest with you, man. I kind of get that. It, it's the same reason, like, I enjoy, like, uh, going to, uh, like, a sex club. It's really not yeah. for the things I'm into. Um, it's to go there to feel like the most normal dude in the room. Like, one time I had a great conversation. I'm calling shenanigans on the word normal. Well, no, I mean, I get it. Normal's just a setting on the dryer. Like, I, I understand it. It's all relativity. Uh, 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 hey, that's like, my kink. Let me... Nor- it's called <laughs> it's normal. Called <laughs> it's a thing. I had a great, like, uh, conversation um about like uh you know what was it uh the the jj abrams star trek films with a gentleman wearing a uh star trek starfleet uniform uh command red top an adult diaper and a pair of like chuck taylors yeah and like we didn't speak a word of it like that was the best part like that's why i love going to these kinds of clubs is because it's really like going to the the arching club like you know it's just all surreal and impossible <laughs> so one of the things uh so we, we talked about uh my best friend kyle right mm-hmm. and uh one of the things that just he said years ago that blew my mind and absolutely reframed all of this for me because we were talking about different levels and layers of kink and preference and i was like i know you have seen some stuff what, what, what did you see that just like blew your mind? It was so out there. And he was like, there's not a single kink that is weird. There yeah. is nothing that is weird. And there are some things that might seem more socially acceptable, depending on where you live. But there is nothing inherently less weird about wanting, you know, having a foot fetish or being into, you know, um, bondage, you know, like uh, essentially the Fifty Shades of Grey than there is, you know, if your kink is Star Trek. You know what, man? Right. This is coming from a guy who ha- clearly hasn't been to a horror house in Germany. <laughs> like, you say that there's no line. <laughs> um, I got, I'm not going to lie. I have never been to a whorehouse in Germany. So apparently, what am I missing? <laughs> oh, no. It's just like the worst thing, like the, the most terrifying thing I could think of is like a haunted house in Germany. Like, Oh, horror yeah. house. Not a horror house. Okay. Oh, no. oh. <laughs> I, we, we were talking about kink, and you bring up German whorehouses, and I'm like, whoa, apparently there is something I do not understand that the movie Eurotrip did not prepare me for. <laughs> uh, let's just say there are more uh, German fetishes. Um, <laughs> I, I, hear, I hear they have a, a room with a dryer in it. Right. <laughs> But no, I mean, uh, really, like, again, I don't yuck anybody's yums, but I am very well aware of, like, what is and isn't, like, inside of my scope. So when I say normal, I'm really, like, saying it in the most egocentric term of the word. Like, screw your zeitgeist. Like, I center on me. 
<laughs> well, and and that is uh, that is that that is the zeitgeist writ large. It's like we can all agree that we're okay. It's everybody else who's weird. That's right. And um, I am quite proud to be one of the weird ones watching a cartoon and analyzing the heck out of it yep. with friends. Yep. And we're so glad that you guys have joined us for this as well, because when Brock enters this party, it is a cavalcade of characters that I did not recognize and two that I did. Yep. Um was it uh, was it the one guy was Mugatu from uh, Zoolander? <laughs> right. Well, and I had seen uh, the lady with the owl setup, um, who I don't know her name. Like uh, she shows up again for the the very venture Halloween special. Uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, like I mean, she's just kind of in his like you know outer social clique. Like yeah, or if he throws a good party, I'll show up. Right. Uh, they start uh, mingling. Orpheus draws everyone together. Uh, victuals will be served. And we've got these little Dixie cups on a tray floating around. And we've got a man named Don Rio Impossible. Or I'm sorry, Don Rio Impossible. I, I forget exactly yeah, how yeah, he pronounced it. Don Rio Impossible uh, is a bonco. Is a bonco. It's okay. a bonco. Uh, and they are passing out little Dixie cups full of the death vine extract and uh, clearly an analog for Ayahuasca. Uh, now, have you guys been to these types of events before? Um, I have friends who have. Professor Savage, one thing, you know very well that I have. <laughs> one thing that was clearly missing from this experience. Vacuum cleaner? Were... <laughs> Diapers? <laughs> Uh, you know, I noticed that they had the pots to throw up in, but uh, I have seen more effluvia oh. from uh, from certain people who can't hold it quite as well. Um, and w w I guess we'll get to that here in a second, uh, because that's when we see the mystery crew. Uh, what, what are they called? The, gro the groovy the crew? Groovy, the groovy yeah. crew. That's when we see the groovy crew. Uh, kind of sneaking around some more. And they have seen not only Orpheus, but Venturestein as well. So it's not just a Dracula factory. It is a Dracula Frankenstein factory. Logically. Yeah. Well, and here's the thing is, Dracula factory, that doesn't, that that's crazy. Frankenstein factory. Well, as a matter of fact, Venture happens to be setting one of those up right now. <laughs> See, yeah. that logically makes <clears throat> sense. I can, yeah. like, I understand a Frankenstein factory. I absolutely, that makes sense. Uh, a Dracula factory. What would that look like? Like a, a, like, like just a blood bank where no one donates. Right. Like, or, you know, it's just Dracula, like in a room, people standing in a line and he's, you know, doing the train at that point. Like you got to think he doesn't even like it anymore. This is a job to him. No, it's like Billy Joel singing piano, man. It's just mouth noises. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just oh uh, i was listening to that earlier man i love that song um oh uh, it's it's epic it is an amazing so waltz. the the next episode of learning bed that we've got coming up after the brock block um is actually going to be on the idea of super science and uh one of the things that i've kind of come across in in my preliminary research is really the idea of super science began 
with, uh, you know, the, the Gothic romance literature and Frankenstein. Um, so this is kind of a, a neat, you know, um, like, you know, meta reference here um, of, of the genre. Um, and also, like, I mean, it's interesting that the cloning should show up um, you know, oh, later right. on in the episode. And so, like, you know, he's got like, you know, several abominations of life, you know, finger quotes abominations, like, you know, uh, current ethical standards, this, that or the other. Right. But like, you know, these, uh, you know, ways to essentially <laughs> ways to essentially uh, beat God at his own game. <laughs> um, right. So like, you know, the cloning and then he's going to double down on the Frankensteining if that doesn't work out like. Yeah. Well, and when we get back to the uh, when we get back to the party, um, Brock is uh, feeling the effects of the uh, stuff, as is everybody else now. All of a sudden, um, they're filling their buckets and uh, and and Brock is actually starting to feel instead. He says he feels like he's got a stomach full of drunken bees. I loved that line. It is beautiful. It really is. But he actually doesn't throw up. He just falls down on the floor and gets kind of philosophical about this. uh, Well, hold on. We're we're, going to have to back up a little bit because we we, we missed a couple of bits here, including the part where Val grabs Patty's chest and Patty just says, don't in the most worn way possible. Like she happened before. Yeah. Um, and we also get uh, Don Rio, uh, impossible abanco, saying, you know, don't be a child of the past. We must be children of the future. Right. And the future is yes, wow. Yes, uh, uh, I'm going to show you this right now to confirm it. That is exactly what it is on my note. <laughs> the future is wow. <laughs> uh, uh, beast. You know. I know this is a little uncalled for, but uh, your video feed right now is looking as yellow as the filter on a Netflix movie set in Bangladesh. (laughs) And now you've told everybody where I am. Uh, Right. Oh, I'm so sorry. Speaking of child labor, do you need more coffee? (laughs) Oh, womp womp. If you you put a little stool there, they can reach up and grab the coffee mug. Well, no, we're just... uh, Where's the hot water? It's what you're in if you don't get me more coffee. (laughs) We're just breeding them with longer arms, you see. (laughs) Right. Um, We also get uh, Rusty calling Brock, saying, help me get dead people. Like like a full gross of dead people. (laughs) A gross. (laughs) And you can see him trying to figure out how many that is. Like, I assumed it was 144, but, uh, you know, he says, what is that, about 100? Well, okay, Uh, I mean, to be fair, Crows already took the cool name. Like, if it's a murder of crows, then what's the, like, plural of corpses? (laughs) So, I have, actually, I'm about to blow minds. I encourage everyone to go online and go for the United States Geological Survey website. And a quick Google search will pull this up. They have a list of what the actual name for groups of animals is called. Uh You know what a group of monkeys is, a group of apes is called? It is a parliament of apes. If you have a group of rhinos, it is a crash of rhinos. It is a murder of crows. It is a uh, a uh, a tower of giraffes. It's also a parliament of owls. Um, And a parliament is uh, actually 
uh, in terms of like, you know, the, the group nomenclatures. It's an old British word for cigarette, right? <laughs> it's where, uh, you know, curious people congregate. Um, no, uh, in terms of like creatures that are usually solitary that incidentally find themselves in a group. Like you don't have owls uh-huh. that fly around in in parliaments very often but you see <laughs> you don't have yeah you, you don't have like a pack of owls hooting through the night <laughs> like coming coming for your mice uh, that'd be a little uh intimidating that's futurama you know, you're just out walking in the dark <laughs> right. like the, the hoot, like the pack of owls like you know like going through the trash in the city in new new york yeah they're coming out and they're like uh, d- d- just going for every like you know they come out singing my generation so uh one thing i love about this conversation uh with doc and in terms of where brock's at uh is clearly like he's he's over it like we've seen him jump at the chance to kill people like i don't know i mean murdering is a sport like you know uh overdoing it is is very much a hobby for him he's just yeah it's his thing yeah like uh you know he he lives in the like the red rage state like you know it's zero to 60 like in in like two seconds do Uh, you remember the live action doom movie with the rock i try not to yeah it wasn't that bad and at the end he takes this special drug that gives him like focus and clarity and that's when they go to first person shooter mode so they build up the entire movie so you can spend the like chunk this movie in first person shooter mode and that's kind of how i imagine brock living like he's either completely bored or in like murder death rage doom like final scene drugged out insano mode like there's a switch and that switch does not take much to get flipped and Brock is not feeling that switch anymore. We're seeing a more reflective Brock and his reflection is not working out well for him. There is, dare I say, remorse aflutter in his heart for that poor murdered butterfly. Yeah. He, uh, he, he just, he saw the guy he's telling everybody at the party. He's like, you know, uh, I could tell, I could see it in his eyes that if I let him get away this one time, he'd never come back. Yeah. But then I also thought, you know, kill him. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and of course, in the meantime, uh, like after the conversation with, with Venture, but before, oh, yeah. uh, like his, his, uh, you know, confessional with the group. Um, the boys actually encounter the groovy crew uh, from afar, yep. and I love their reaction here. Uh, you know, Hank's like a hippie. Dean's like, "Well, we better follow it." And, and how? <laughs> <laughs> like you do. Um, did you actually hear what groovy was? What the dog was telling Sonny? I mean, he's apparently telling him to kill girls, I guess, or kill. Women. No, no, dude. It, it, it actually took me a second because what I thought he said was the hair needs to be punished, and I was like, Yes. Does he? Does he want him to get a haircut? Like, what is this about? No, no, no. It's the air, like air groover. Uh-huh. You know, like German the German air. word for male, like air and damen. Uh-huh. Oh, see, I thought okay. it was. Uh... Again, I thought it was hair because, again, uh, I, I thought that was a part of uh, David Berkowitz's M.O. was um, uh, he was killing blondes, I want to say, 
Um, I actually, I, when I, uh, at one of my former jobs, I was talking to a, a couple of older ladies who uh, lived in New York at the time, and they were telling me about how they would dye their hair because it was the, the like, uh, wrong, like, you know, hair, it was the, the hair color during the Son of Sam, and you didn't want to be, you know, caught with, like, blonde hair, brunette hair, but whichever one would have you. Um, Do you think um, that that was, that, that just that Son of Sam, Samson, uh, uh, pun was what was the root of this entire episode mm -hmm. i hadn't thought about that. well no i mean because brock samson is is uh modeled after like obviously like race bannon and simultaneously like you know the early like 20th century strongmen uh you know i.e like the the generation after sandow you know who is also referenced in the show um but sunny you know, that's where the, obviously the name is like Sonny, Son of Sam. Yeah, yeah. But they were like, let's do an episode where we look into Samson. What if he's the son of Sam? Or what if we bring Scooby-Doo into this, make every single member of the Mystery Incorporated a serial killer, and let's just see how this plays out. Well, you know, also uh, something I was noticing is uh, while Brock starts his, you know, kind of confessional with the group, and, uh, you know, before, like, everybody starts purging and then hits cruising altitude. <laughs> right. When they cut back to, uh, you know, the, the groovy crew, um, it's Sonny, like, freaking out because he saw the kids whom he killed, you know. And, oh, dude. This yeah. was great. Well, and uh, this was not a set of deaths that was referenced in assisted suicide. No. Um, no, well, because they didn't find the bodies. Right. Uh, well, they, bingo. Yeah. Like you just kind of assumed they disappeared or, you know, got trapped in the mine um, and and then just moved on as a dad. Like, did he just like wait out there for 20 minutes and like I give up? Or maybe that's where crushed head. The, dude, because one of them had a crushed head. <gasps> yeah. OK. Cheers. Right. But anyway, so at, at the same moment, like you have Sonny, you know, freaking out, dealing with, you know, a death the same thing brock is like mm -hmm. you know essentially like they've come back from the dead um you know and he's kind of having to deal with it so yeah Forcing samson you and front your actions yeah samson and son of sam are, are very much having parallel arcs that way they are yeah and they both have long mm -hmm. blonde hair although samson's is much more glorious yes yes um, well uh, to be fair like um, Sonny is not sporting the Tennessee top hat. No. <laughs> like, he doesn't have the bounce or the, the luxurious curls. Like, I mean, <laughs> at, at the end of the day, like, it takes a real man to be able to wear a mullet and not come off like Joe Exotic. Right. Uh, and, you know, if anybody can pull it off, it's Samson. It's like now, a talk man about a series of great archings. Watch some Tiger King. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's true. I've still never seen it because there's a part of me that still wants to like my fellow man. <laughs> Fair enough. Oh, then why do you hang out with me? Uh, because I like you, Beast. Aww. And you're, you're more than a man. You're a beast. <laughs> All right. So uh, this is where we get to uh, Brock kind of having his moment of reflection. He's just a guy in a butterfly suit. And that's where uh don impossible don rio impossible starts telling a story of great wisdom about a time he was sitting there in his canoe and he looked down and a dolphin was swimming 
So he climbed out of his canoe, went over, and had sex with the dolphin. Uh, one time, I am on the, the Amazon in my canoe, and I see swim the dolphin, uh, the beautiful dolphin. So I slip out of my canoe, and I grab her, this fish, uh, <laughs> and then I fuck it, this fish. And Brock responds, what the hell does that have to do with anything? And to which, you know, Don Rio says something, and the interpreter says, like, the <laughs> best, like, line. Hot dolphin! Hot dolphin! <laughs> hot dolphin! Oh, dude. Uh, uh, hot dolphin. Uh, I, my notes just have that word in quotes, followed by multiple exclamation points. Like, it, it's, it's, it seems like such a simple setup, but it pays off so well. Because Brock is so manly, he makes even pink look manly. Well, if you, it's called salmon, uh, because if you name (laughs) it after an animal, it's more manly. But um, so, okay, let's like, let's take, uh, what's your individual take on what this means? To me, like uh, going through this guy's story as follow up to Brock's story, it's this guy's whole thing is just like, you know, sometimes you see a beautiful thing and you just have to fuck it. And not like, you know, obviously he did this literally, but, you know, it's kind of like the same way Brock was like, you know, I could have let him live. But Sometimes you see a beautiful thing and you just have to kill it. Yeah. So, like, you, you do, do, you do you... your thing and whenever you encounter something beautiful in the world, do your thing to it. If that, I guess, yeah. Or, I mean, it's, is... it's that, uh, was it a, you know, uh, line from Fight Club? Um, I, I had to destroy something beautiful. Yeah, I today. wanted to destroy something beautiful. Uh, I, I got to tell you, like, that is such... It, uh, I think Val would have a few words about that mindset. <laughs> I don't disagree oh, with yeah. you. Um, and here's the thing. And this is why this is an amazing episode to me. Because this does not change Brock Sampson. No. This reaffirms Brock Sampson. Brock Sampson comes out of this more Brock than he's ever been. <laughs> right. Well, in order to get to that point, we get a deep dive into the world of Brock Sampson. And that deep dive is Brock floating in a beautiful ocean as a beautiful pink ocean underneath a beautiful pink sky as a beautiful pink dolphin swims around him. A hot dolphin, if you will. He's getting a hot dolphin ride. And as they are sailing their way through this mystical paradise atop this dolphin, nude, glorious in the sea foam, as though Aphrodite could spring from it at any moment. The dolphin is talking about love and peace and how all creatures share the same need. And, well. (laughs) (laughs) And suddenly it dies very, very bad. The secret of happiness lies not in conquest, but in empathy. the dolphin is speared in the back and ripped out from under Brock (laughs) and drawn up into the belly button of what appears to be a very large and very naked woman though her face is obscured thank you Mantis Eye so I have to give credit we we bounce uh, I'm sorry we uh, actually let's go and stick with this for a second who does that giant naked woman turned out to be so this is one of the more 
interesting relationship Brock has in his life. And uh, we'll actually be covering this in the next episode of the Brock Block, so I don't want to go too deeply into it. But he sees the visage of what can easily be described as like a hundred foot, like a 50 foot tall uh, hunter gatherers, fully nude uh, down to the, the breast, like the giant breast. And he's, he's no, no, you, 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 you say it right. His big, beautiful tits. That is exactly what he, <laughs> His, that is exactly what he calls A gift them. to God, man, super yep. science. <laughs> um, yeah. So yeah. And he's cradling Brock. Just like in the most sweetest, tender way possible, which is hilarious to me because, you know, the whole time he's, uh, you know, going through like, you know, what is this namby pamby bullshit? Yeah. Yeah. It's like you don't need to worry about whether or not you've killed someone. You work for the government. You're beyond good and evil, Superman, which I love the Nietzsche reference. Yeah. <laughs> Like the Ubermensch, you are beyond good and evil. And of course, like the Ubermensch, the, the word Superman comes from Nietzsche's concept. Uh, and the idea that your morality doesn't matter. It's a very might makes right mystique. Like if you're strong enough, it doesn't yeah. matter what anybody else thinks. And he's like, you're going to special ops heaven. And can you break down what is in special ops heaven? Well, it's goddamn great. Uh, (laughs) there's trim and guns everywhere we eat steak flavored clouds and poop secrets (laughs) like i love the pitch on this he's he's like really he's like really (laughs) and brock like what was it he said the last time he said that dog won't hunt yeah, you know, and uh, yep. I, I love the whole bit. It's like, you know, you're a tool, boy, a tool. Built for a single purpose by the United States of shut your goddamn third eye. <laughs> for a reason, right? <laughs> yeah. Yep. Um, yeah, and then, of course, like, you know, uh, like, one of my favorite things is always the the nail and hammer adage, at which yeah. point Hunter yep. says, you know, you can't teach a hammer to love nails. And then he gives them, like, a thing that I was always familiar with uh, growing up in the South. That dog don't hunt. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, of course, that is exactly what Brock is screaming when he arises out of his psychedelic journey and tears off through the party into the night. Now, while this has been going on, the boys have encountered the Groovy Crew, and they're now completely shocked to have seen the ghosts that uh, that um, uh, Sonny had seen. They saw them as well. They watched the Sonny murder them in the caves in Baja two years ago, right? But they're back now. They're completely freaked out. But of course, Ted has a very clear solution for this, and that's his gun. So he pulls his gun, yes. and what do the boys yell? <laughs> I didn't think hippies had guns. <laughs> Super runaway! They're probably like pirate hippies. <laughs> right. So the boys bounce. And, of course, the groovy crew starts going after it. And actually, that one little line. So none of the others have heard the dog talk. Right. right? He only talks. He's like this demon that only talks to Sonny. And 
of course, Sonny's like, I told you they were ghosts. And the dog talks, man. <laughs> you you kind of get the feeling that, that Ted does, that the other members of the group just do not take Sonny seriously. And then, you know, this is his one chance. Well, and uh, again, it goes back to like the Scooby-Doo tropes. Um, you know, yep. Like they totally address like, you know, well, how are we out of gas when we have it? Like, you know, we've got uh, a five gallon yeah, can in the back. And we've been going home for 10 years now, for, you know, um, and this is one of those, uh, you know, obviously that's that's exactly what Shaggy and Scooby are in the, the scope of the series um, is they're the comic relief. Um, they did a uptake on Scooby-Doo called Be Cool Scooby-Doo. Um, and it yeah. was a lot of fun. It's very much like um, Venture Brothers meets Scooby-Doo that way. And uh cool one of the things that they referenced in an episode like Scooby and Shaggy just have it. They're like, they're done. They're tired of being bait. And right. like, oh. Yeah. Like, you know, that's the, the self-awareness of the show, right? Like that's the whole point is nobody takes them seriously because pretty much all you do is stand them in a room with food and let the ghosts come to them. But see, man, I saw Ellen page in hard candy. I know that bait can easily be something completely different. Like well, and where, yeah. why didn't Scooby and Shaggy like switch the, I know I never saw a be cool Scooby-Doo, but did Scooby and Shaggy start like essentially like being their own heroes at that point? So what happens in, in that particular, uh, they find replacements and it's like <laughs> a, a bald hipster with a shaved head, kind of like a Moby type holding a Pekingese. <laughs> and <laughs> all the time, like these guys are going like you know they're training their replacements but their replacements are kind of going above and beyond like searching for clues and they're like whoa 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 whoa, whoa. you don't, <laughs> you don't it's all about the, the the three f's it's you know uh fear food and you leave the clue finding to them right? <laughs> like, they get so broken by how much of a bad job these like guys are doing because they freak out in the situation and then, you know, it's like the monster catches them and Scooby and Shaggy pull the, you know, switcheroo where they're wearing the costumes. And yeah. it doesn't matter what costumes, but then they break down the situation. And he's like, so what you do first is you positively assert the situation. And so, he, you know, starts giving him like, you know, uh, life coaching lessons on positive assertion in this whole meta context of how Shaggy and Scooby actually survive these situations. Dude, be cool, Scooby Doo is uh, low key like sleeper. Like, I, I definitely uh, recommend everybody check that out. It's a lot of fun. Cool, that's worth looking into. Cool. Not much like we get the opportunity to look into how the boys can't outrun bullets. That's right. <laughs> yeah, like, and, and Ted's conclusion to that is very logical. <laughs> like, ghosts aren't scared of bullets, <laughs> right? And uh, so, that's when they, they, you know, find themselves in uh, the room that is revealed to be the clone tube room. Right. And this is actually one of my favorite things. Uh, so Ted shouts out this line. It's like, they're, you know, they're not ghosts. They're the boys from Brazil. <laughs> yep. And OK, so after doing a little bit of research and I know what well, this movie was. Wait, wait, wait. You, you've never seen the boys from Brazil? Oh, no, no, Absolutely. No, no. Research for terms of the podcast. I have, I have something very delicious here for you. Oh, hit me. So, uh, Boys from Brazil, for those who don't know, is a 1978 film, uh, science fiction film uh, by 
a British author, a uh, book of the same name. And uh, it's about a cloning program, um, you know, from World War II, where the rat trail made its way to, you know, Brazil, and Joseph Mingla is cloning Hitler's, uh, which comes up again later on in the, the Venture series. Um, but the more remarkable thing about this movie is in this film, it stars both Gregory Peck as Dr. Mengele and Steve Gutenberg from the Police Academy movies. Oh, my God. Uh, you are missing one of the most important actors of the entire... Uh, the, I mentioned the enti- like, Dude, Lawrence Olivier. <laughs> you mentioned Steve Gutenberg before Lawrence Olivier? I was just shocked that Gregory Peck and Steve Gutenberg were in the same movie. Wasn't I mean, it's this he- his first movie and he dies after a phone call pretty early, right? Yeah, he he's the guy that basically tips off the Nazi hunter uh to the plot um before before eating it. Um but yeah, I mean, uh I mean, now that you pointed out absolutely like the fact that, you know, Police Academy is in <laughs> the, look, I'm not going to pretend Arabia. I'm not going to pretend that I didn't watch uh I didn't watch more Police Academy movies more often than I did The Boys from Brazil. Like <laughs> I I'm not I'm not going to pretend that that's not the case. Like, you know, I absolutely did. I've seen all the Police Academy movies. There were several I watched way more than I should have. It's amazing what you'll do when your only access to Hollywood movies is a videotape rental store. <laughs> like, it's, it, it, your options are limited, sometimes completely by chance. And oh, dude, you yeah. stick with what you like. And Police Academy is a perfect example of that. Like, um, when sequels go too far and you've gotten roped into a thing, right? Like, there were like five, six Police Academy sequels. And I don't remember them all, but I remember after the third one is when the cast started falling apart, but then I accidentally caught the one where they go to Russia, and that was oh, actually yeah. really good. Yeah. <laughs> like, where they're working for the Kremlin. Yeah. Yeah, that, that may have been the last one. That, that was five, if I remember correctly. I don't know. It's, it's worth looking into. Uh, I, I, in fact, I it's been so long since I've seen those movies. Well, we're going to have to crack open our copy of the Steve Gutenberg Bible. And, and... <laughs> <laughs> you know, so funnily enough, you know, Steve Gutenberg, I'm sorry, Steve Gutenberg, Johannes Gutenberg, <laughs> Steve Gutenberg may be responsible for Protestantism. Um, <laughs> so Johannes Gutenberg, uh, you know what he was making before he started printing Bibles? Tell me no, it was what? baby carrots. <laughs> it was indulgences. He could mass produce indulgences for the church. Uh-huh. What? And the mass production of indulgences was ticked off guys like Martin Luther. Oh, wow. Because you essentially every time you got, you paid for one of those indulgences, it was a purge. Like the movie, The Purge. You could do yeah. anything as long as you had that piece of paper. And it's like, ah, 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 God forgave me. See, I bought it. And, you know, wow. it goes to show you if uh, he would have been printing off copies of the uh, Police Academy script instead of doing this. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs>
<laughs> Steve Gutenberg, the Protestant savior. <laughs> so, uh, we man, we are really stay on target. that's right all right so at this point you know this is where ted uh actually takes the shot at the boys of brazil the boys from brazil um but instead punctures one of the tanks uh causing one of the hank clone slugs to fall out right and so Venturstein proceeds to like uh go make a run for it and then slip on the the clone as if it were a banana peel and get that long, like, Hanna-Barbera drag across the floor with the bongo oh. noise, the ba da ba da ba da It was glorious. It was, it was so glorious. I loved it so much, and I'm so glad they included it. And while this is going on, so uh, Ted is going to go kill the boys, but then who should come around the corner? Who does he see? None other than Brock, Brock? freaking Brock Samson. Samson, who grabs the gun i'm sorry grabs his arm starts twisting it manages to shoot sunny breaks his arm uh venture stein goes after the dog groovy as kills the dog the girls all run away and it seems in this fitful burst of action that the situation has resolved itself but it hasn't yep Brock, even though he has become one with his true self. Doc appears. Venturestein proudly heading up, holding the carcass of this dog. And where do we find the boys? They have... They're curled in a... I was going to say, they're curled in a fetal position on the floor in a puddle. Now, okay. So, in terms of, like, surreal situations in animation... Like, there are very few that uh, hop, crop up like this. Like, this scene very much reminds me of the scene from Rick and Morty where they hop dimensions after Cronenberg, their dimension. <laughs> and then, uh, yeah. like, they, they slide into a dimension where they accidentally killed themselves just moments before. So they bury the body and kind of take over their lives. Got, got a job right, <laughs> right. <laughs> and so like in that same fashion where morty is living with his like you know dead body you know meters away from buried in the eats. backyard yeah. yeah and so you know the kids are like what are all the why do they look like us like it's that same um kind of like weird existentialness that way yeah i think uh brock sampson actually su- sums it up real good he says <laughs> I, I think they're in some kind of saw your own clone coma. <laughs> they saw their own clones, and I think they're in some sort of yeah. saw your own clone coma. Like, and that's the technical no. uh, term yeah, for that. That's that's, that's yeah. in the Bible. That's metric. That's not standard. So, <laughs> we uh, we get Doc actually being a good dad here. In the like, Doc's doing the right thing the wrong way. But like <laughs> oh yeah scrambling to come up with a way to salvage the boys' psyches comes up with the lamest possible parental excuse and it works. Uh, uh, He's like, boys, <laughs> you ruined it. Now all of a sudden the boys are on familiar territory. They haven't seen their clones. They've done something bad. And this is a situation they have found themselves in before. 
So all of a sudden, he's giving them strong psychological footing to stand on. You found your birthday presents. Right? He's not wrong. And uh, right, because every time he opens one, it's their birthday again. Yeah. Right. So right. he then proceeds to tell them that these were going to be their gifts, that they were going to have clones of themselves to think that they were super cool and do their chores. <laughs> right. But now they've gone and ruined it. Dean. Dean. Um, okay, so uh, reading in Go Team Venture, uh, one of the things that they talk about is a little bit of the disconnect from handing it off to Ben Edlin. Not to say it was terribly bad or anything, but uh, when they were pitching the project and uh, Doc Hammer kind of slid into Ben Edlin's seat, uh, he left the project with one kind of mindset. And then when he came back to write this episode, you can see, you know, he's very much in that mindset still. So Venture Brothers is a parody. So he writes a Scooby-Doo parody. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the things that he does that they mention is, you know, he kind of regresses the boys a little bit back to, you know, the pilot where they're still naive. You know, this is, this is, these are the same boys who donated their kidneys. Yeah. You know, um, like the, the same level of like naivete. And to be fair... Like, you know, they did reset. Like, these are a whole different set of, like, you know, Hank and Dean than we saw from season one. Um, but that was definitely something they brought up was, like, you know, the, the renewed naivete of the boys, um, which was a little atypical to where they progressed the characters by this time. Well, and, and, and I'm not going to lie. I really like this version of the boys. Like, oh, yeah. this, you know, the more character driven stories with the boys which we'll get into a little bit later like especially season seven like we are ramping up for something really special uh but like the super naive happy-go-lucky kids who only need a flashlight and some astronaut ice cream to go on a great adventure right like that's that's the heart of these characters and it's thrilling to kind of see that again because we don't get a chance to see it very often especially in the later seasons. They're much more jaded, worn down, and have more in common with their father's viewpoint than with the viewpoint we get introduced to them with in the first season. Yeah. Yeah, well, and we get the opportunity then to kind of see Doc be a good dad by essentially lying to them, which, as a parent, has happened before. And uh, it's one of those things that you don't necessarily feel good about doing. You feel great about doing it, <laughs> because you are essentially creating for them the world that you want them to live in, which is often better than the world that they are going to be confronted with as adults. And for a brief moment, you get to hold on to that. Like today, there were no dinosaurs attacking my home, but my, my you know, Ha3 and I had to run around and hide from dinosaurs all day. That was fun. Yeah. I'll, I'll run with that. And then no, I, I get what you're saying. This is very much, uh, this is very much like his version of like you know Santa Claus is real. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, from there, we get to our word of the day. <laughs> oh, oh, I love this. Um, so when you know they're going through the whole thing and he starts kind of giving them the scolding, he's got to pull it back around. You see. Um, you know, 
well, now I've got to go and think of something better. So why don't you kids go off and wash off all that chicanery? Like chicanery. Is it hard to get off? Do you need a special soap? In my mind, chicanery seems very like sticky and tar-like. Or Yeah, you need a loofah for chicanery. You got to scrub a little. <laughs> like, is chicanery... <laughs> okay, no, here it is. Chicanery is the clone goo. Yes. Yeah. That's the lab name for chicanery. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, you know, um, uh, amniotic polyphosphates uh, just sit well. There's no the zing. Kids, but... There's no zing to right. Yeah. So uh, we get as the boys are leaving, Hank turn around and earn his dad's love. At this point, he's beating Dean when he turns and says, Dad, you're the best dad ever. Yes, I am. <laughs> By the way, uh, my clones do this to me now, and it feels amazing. <laughs> now, sometimes it is completely unprompted, and you know, my youngest or my oldest will just look over, Dad, you're the best. Which, again, going back to lying to our kids, <laughs> I'm like, yes, I am. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, of course I am. But then, like, I've totally had those moments. Uh, we've just introduced them to Lego games on the PS4, um, and they can actually play simultaneously. It's great for the uh, fine motor skills and doing a little bit of problem solving. But, of course, you know, you've got to monitor some screen time. So what my my clones have started doing is one clone will pitch a fit the other clone will see this and say no 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 i'm going to be the good one right now <laughs> right. in the middle of all this like you know thermonuclear meltdown on one side of like which whichever one decides it's going to be their turn this day like the other one's like i'm not throwing a fit i'm not whining I'm the good one. Yeah, he, they they all but like come out and say it. like they're just so close to saying it, but instead of saying that, they're like, "Dad, you're the best." <laughs> right. uh, one of the games that we play at my household is your parenting level is completely correlated with how many children you can get crying at one time, <laughs> like. Those are your like apex moments as a parent where you're trying to hold all three ha's for whatever reason. And they, they've all gotten hurt or upset for completely different reasons. Like one of them is upset because you won't let them have a popsicle. The other's upset because he just fell off of a couch. And the other one's upset because he saw the other one fall off a couch. <laughs> like, uh. I mean, it's a it's a process. Well, and like, uh, it really, it's like those weird social phenomenons. Like uh, when I was a clerk at a grocery store, the one thing I would notice is like, you know, it would just die up front. Like, you know, I know we have customers in the store, but it's almost like they're organizing in the back. And it's like, we'll meet all up at the front 30 minutes from now. Right. And then they all like rush to the checkout. And then the next thing you know, it's crazy. And that's what it's like having more than one kid. Like, this <laughs> thing, like, you know, 
one decides they're going to go off. The other one's like, well, no, 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 I'm not going to be left out. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's how we all started smoking. It's time for a smoke break. Well, I'm not I'm not going to be the only one working. <laughs> right. Oh, uh, so credits now, have rolled. Oh, go, go ahead. No, no, you go ahead actually. I was going to say credits uh, have rolled and we get to our little stinger at the end, which is a glorious Denouement because oh, it revealed... actually be... oh, go ahead. I'm sorry to interrupt, but I did want to say before we cut to that, um while Doc has just proven he is the best dad ever, suddenly um, he goes to do one more thing that kind of indicates he may not be the best dad ever. Um, he counts up uh, Sonny and Ted's corpses <laughs> and realizes he's not quite where he needs to be with General Manhowers yet. So he grabs the life support cable on uh, that feeds the clone tubes and uh, looks up just in time to see Brock scowling at him. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, like, you know, and, and that was something we talked about in, in the, the the psychosis of Rusty Avenger was like his relationship to his children because, you know, they're clones. Like, <laughs> how how is that different than, you know, relationships that you have with your kids or your step you know a step parent might have with a kid like and uh you know just obviously you can just casually yank the life support and be all right like yeah you know yolo just kidding <laughs> i feel like hugh jackman could weigh in on this oh yes oh man thank you for so much for bringing that up <laughs> you experience so much joy at the thought of a hundred dead huge <laughs> i do um and in, in case nobody's catching the reference here uh it's reference to uh christopher nolan prestige the prestige uh, which is amazing yeah and it is incredible um because like the big twist at the ending is the uh, hundred hugh jackman's dead in boxes now okay like at this spoiler point, <laughs> at this point in my life by the time this happened uh i was a little upset with hugh jackman's casting as wolverine because he is just far too tall for the character like being short is important to like wolverine's whole like you know uh constant underestimation Back. Yeah, well, it, it, he's got he's got a I don't even know if I'd call it a Napoleon complex. Like, who is shorter than Napoleon? Like, uh, like Wolverine is a bodybuilding elf. Yeah, I mean well, he's like five two in the comics, like five four or something. Well, he, yeah, um, he's named after a short animal. Right. Yeah. So, and don't get me wrong, you know, uh, looking back on it, he like you know being a grown up now. Hugh Jackman did not do a terrible job and definitely Hugh Jackman was great. Like Jackman don't do a terrible job. Oh, (laughs) it would kill you. Dude. Hugh Jackman is a multi talented, like acting polymath who is a gift to humanity. I've come around to Hugh Jackman too. Here's the thing is I've absolutely have. And what I find interesting about Hugh Jackman is um, it's actually kind of this weird glimpse into what Australian masculinity is actually like. There's singing and dancing. Yeah. So um, the guy who directed uh, 
what was it? Uh, the Great Gatsby and the the Romeo Baz and Juliet. Lerman. Yeah, Baz Luhrmann. Um, I was listening to a segment of uh, an interview with him on Fresh Air, and he was talking about like how he used to go to ballroom dancing classes. And you know, Hugh Jackman talks about being a song and dance man, right? And then after Baz Luhrmann would get done with his like ballroom dancing classes, him and his brother would be dropped off in the middle of like you know the Australian outback by his father. And told to like survive for three days. Like if you're like that's one it way to teach your kids the classics. To, yeah, <laughs> it, it is time for me to update my parenting style because apparently I am not going to produce any uh, film directors the way I'm raising them now. Well, and uh, of course, you know, we find out like as an adult, his dad was always like you know within a safe distance, stalking them like prey. <laughs> <laughs> oh. But like you know, obviously aware of their you know, their ability to take care of themselves. And I mean, uh, as a parent, like I, on some level, I get that. Uh, I want to be honest with you. I don't know if I could ever do that to my kids. Like not to say I couldn't do it as a parent. Like um, my kids are not carved out of wood. Like I have very sweet, sensitive, tender boys. Like they're funny. They are bright. But like the second you say no or you hurt their feelings a little bit. Like they just shatter like glass. I love the way you say sensitive in a way that implies it's not among the first eaten during the zombie apocalypse. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Oh my God, Brenda. Ah! Well, uh, no, uh, he, not among the first eaten. It, they're clearly going to be in the second or third wave <laughs> after a loved one has been turned and they can't <laughs> deal with that. Bring themselves. Yeah. They can't bring themselves to kill Mommy. grandma. Mommy. Yeah, bingo. Like that's yeah. that's what's going to kill my kids in the zombie apocalypse. <laughs> right. Um is their tender heart. Yeah. Did you ever watch Return of the Living Dead Part Two? It has no. one of my favorite lines in movies ever. There's a zombie. The boy, right? Boyfriend, girlfriend. Boyfriend has been turned into a zombie. His girlfriend manages to climb into the ceiling and is like trying to stay away from him. And the boyfriend is trying to convince her to let her or to let him eat her brains. And his, the line that comes out of his mouth is, if you really loved me, you'd let me eat your brains. <laughs> and she says, oh, oh, okay. God. Men are so typical. I really love, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Come on, baby. Let's play a game called. Is it that on a keychain? Yeah, let's play a game called Just the Cortex. (laughs) I think that's on a keychain at a gas station somewhere. Yeah, yeah. Uh, With that being said, uh, Doc has proven who he is. We are in our credits, but of course, we get a little stinger at the end where Brock. Is driving down the whoa, highway. Whoa, whoa, hang on. I'm sorry. <laughs> so this is just a very like zombie horror movie way of saying "give me head." <laughs> oh. <laughs> you may proceed. So the credits roll <laughs> for the third time. But wait, no, I'm, I'm the credits roll for the fourth time, and we see. In the stinger that is stinging, Brock driving down the road with in, in Adrian with Venturestein sitting in the passenger seat. And what has Venturestein been yelling all episode that he is yelling with great enthusiasm now? 
Press it to! <laughs> <laughs> um, and he's holding a shoe that looks like a dog foot. <laughs> he has very clearly learned how to make shoes from watching that video and has turned the remains of Groovy, the demonic dog, into footwear. And he is so incredibly proud of it. And as they are driving down the road, he's yelling, prostitutes! And then, shoo! (laughs) Brock, of course, is trying to dissuade him. He's like, I'm not sure they're going to be too impressed by that. But on their way to go get prostitutes, Brock is taking him to a brothel. And to end our episode with, what is it that Venture Stein yells? I can't believe you're both checking your notes. Wait a minute. How? How was this not the ultimate statement of this episode? Because this one line brings Brock full circle. Venturestein it up. is Brock's Venturestein is essentially the outward manifestation of Brock's inner feeling, right? Like, that's what so horrifies Brock. Venturestein is Brock's conscience. It's Brock's sense of self. And what's happening to Venturestein is in many ways a parallel to Brock's character arc throughout this episode. And what Venturestein yells here is not just an enthusiastic, recapitulation of a previously mentioned gag it is a statement of everything that is true and good in brock samson's life and that is that brock good brock has become (laughs) who he is brock has made peace with his demons he has confronted his past and then laid waste to it brought it gently into his bed where he did horrible things that it begged for more then they're driving off to this brothel where I guarantee they know him by name and he has his girls and or whatever the case may be. And Venture Stein's going to get him some. And Brock in this moment, in this car, having made peace with his demons is good. Yeah. My notes say all of that. (laughs) (laughs) I, I didn't. I didn't say it because I thought it was. Not- <laughs> uh, no, um, no, no. That's a really solid point. Like you know, really yeah. kind of coming around there. And uh, what also I really enjoy about the whole moment is, like Brock is taking him out to live a little. like uh you know again uh that was my kind of affirmation on how uh you know he's made peace is like you know um he's decided like you know uh he is who he is and does what he does but the situation is the same way so all right like you know i shouldn't be weirded out by this guy i'm just gonna treat him like he's another guy let's go out and live a little man like you you know no, um, Viva Los what, what do you guys, what, what do you guys bet though that uh, the the prostitute they're going to see is is Robin from Nightingales? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I imagine that. Look, it, you know as well as I do that uh, women in various forms of the sex industry and men uh, have a variety of challenges that they're confronted with. 
And one of the things that uh, has always impressed me is professionalism. And you've got some people who take this very seriously as a career, as an opportunity to, you know, kind of advance their goals. And, you know, I, I, when this was kind of happening, I was wondering what, where they were going to go. Like, was this going to be the kind of place where Box like, no, this is a, this is a professional joint. People are going to do their job. Like, I'm going to pay well. This is going to end up all right. Or were they going to go hit the place right off the Marine base? No, no. Like, <laughs> you have to think in this world, you know, there has to be like, you know, for instance, uh, you remember the Monarch episode where he's trying to get over Dr. Girlfriend? And he makes the like prostitute, like he goes through like the big red dragon scene <laughs> and he makes, right. like, he makes her yeah. go through the cocoon <laughs> crucible. Yeah. So clearly like on some level, they're used to this. Like this is not a, uh, uh, you know, oh, well, like, yeah, totally had to bang out of Frankenstein this week, you know, charge him an extra 50. <laughs> right. Yeah. And he was wearing a Batman mask. That was kind of cool. <laughs> No, no, Adam West, one of the good ones. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, dude, that would have been been which Batman? Ben Affleck. Oh, it would have been weird if it was a Clooney. (laughs) And just to be clear, I loved Ben Affleck's Batman. Like, I'm not, I'm not hating on Ben Affleck's Batman. I remember so much vitriol being thrown at that man, just like when Heath Ledger got cast in uh, The Dark Knight. Like, just. Haters gonna hate, man. Like, why in the world can't the fan community just let these things happen? Actually, I remember talking. Um, do you remember Gretchen? Did you ever work with Gretchen when you were up here? Uh, the coordinator? I don't believe so, but her husband, Jason, is like what like is Commissioner Gordon in real life. Like he is quiet, unassuming, ripped. But it's like slight, like, you know, you kind of see him and just like, oh, not much. But like, like the second, like the, that, like just, he dude is ripped, right? But he is so calm, so peaceful. He's got the Jim Gordon thing going on, right? The, the whole like mustache. The comb just, mustache. Yeah, dude, it, it's, it's, it's great. And I asked him, cause he's really insightful, super smart guy. Like those two are just amazing. And I asked him, what do you think about Ben Affleck getting cast? Because I was really interested when he got cast, what people were going to say. Like, you know, a lot of people were very reactionary to it. He's like, I don't care. And I said, oh, he's like, I already got my Batman movies. They can do whatever they want. I mean, I, I completely buy into that mindset. Um, everybody's kind of giving Robert Pattinson the same, the same guff. Uh, one of my favorite runs on Batman was actually drawn by a guy named Frank Quietly who actually drew a very kind of slender framed Batman because he was more about being nimble and doing detective work. Um, It wasn't so much like Biff Bang Pow type stuff, right? Um, So, I mean, like, yeah, it's weird. Like, I have my things. Like, uh, I have to go ahead and maybe end my arching of the uh, Snyder Cut community because it looks like that actually might happen. Um, Wait, really? Oh, dude, yeah. Like, apparently he's been screening it, and uh, no there's way. rumors that it's going to show up maybe on HBO Max. So wow. the best thing I can hope for um, as a professional antagonist at this point is that it's just bad if it comes out 
Um. <laughs> Man, can I be honest? I enjoyed all of those movies. I really like, loved uh, Man of Steel, and I didn't mind Batman versus Superman extended cut. I didn't cut. either. Dude, the, the, the extended cut made the whole movie. Bingo. Um, just the same way, like, when the, you know, the folks at Fox went back and did, like, the rogue cut of uh, Days of Futures Past. Mm-hmm. Um, definitely, like, you know, improved the film. So, just and it has everything to do and it's always amazing to me when certain details get cut. like i understand why they felt like they had to they're like oh no one's going to sit through a movie like that those people have obviously never been to an indian cinema right because those movies are like four hours long people will 100 percent sit and watch a movie like and if you it doesn't even have to be brilliant it just has to be enjoyable and that was one of the things that I think a lot of people kind of misunderstood about those films. It was that the dark tone wasn't an, in an effort to be gritty unto itself. It's to establish how difficult the world is so that the Justice League seems necessary. Because once you bring them in to clean it up, what did you think was going to happen to the overall tone? It was a long arc. They put a guy in control who had a creative vision for the property. And then when not everybody bought into it, decided to kind of skip bail, essentially. Well, like speaking of skipping bail, that's the whole problem with the whole DC universe to begin with is it was predicated on extending the Christopher Nolan Batman, at which point Christopher Bale was like, no, thanks, guys. Or something I'm, <laughs> like I'm, I'm not entirely sure whether he was actually offered or what have you. But I mean, Man of Steel was clearly set up to be like the brighter film in this like, you know, Christopher Nolan's like, you know, uh, like Metropolis to Christopher Nolan's Gotham. Um, mm-hmm. And then, you know, Christian Bale, you know, uh, for whatever reason, was not coming back. And they decided to stick with the tone. Why the tone is fine. Let's be honest. Well, I mean, that's the thing is they just set him up for like, you know, being Batman. I mean, even if you think about where Batman is when they pick it back up, Mm -hmm. this is the Batman that's been broken by Bane, blah, blah. This is what Frank Miller sets up in The Dark Knight Returns. Mm -hmm. Like, and I mean, I know you get like, you know, shades of that in Dark Knight Rises and stuff. Um, but like, clearly that's, that's more based on like nightfall, but like after that, I mean, like that's, that's where they were going. It's really clear by, you know, the, the arc that they took the movie that, um, you know, he has to suit up. He fakes his death just like dark Knight returns. So now Mm -hmm. he has to, he has a reason to quote unquote returns. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and instead like, you know, they had to pinch it off and, you know, say that those are their own separate movies, like, and that's just fine. But I guess the thing I I dislike about it leaves the bad the, the bad taste in my mouth is people think that because they kept the gritty tone, that gritty immediately means more plausible in reality, and ergo is better and more superior to Marvel films. Uh, the truth is, like, I mean. The problem I have with that is fundamentally on like, you know, somebody who enjoys science fiction, that's a problem. Wired Magazine uh, did their first science fiction issue a few years back. And the thesis of it was, are we creating a dystopia 
because that's what we're writing. You know, is that where like all the futurists, that's where the mindset is. So that's where we're progressing toward. Or, you know, is this an like, or is the uh, dystopian sci-fi uh, more of a reflection of, you know, prophecy of things to come? Like this is what the futurists see for us because of, you know, decisions being made here and now. So is it self-fulfilling prophecy or is it, you know, uh, genuine prophecy, I guess that way. And that's, you know, I, I don't want to live in a dark and gritty world all the time. You know, it's cool every so often. And that's what I loved about Man of Steel. That was a bright ray of sunshine. I hated that line in my, you know, in my culture, it means hope. Like that is completely <laughs> a cheese ball line. I didn't hate it so much. It ruined the film, but I mean, this dude was an overt message for Jesus. Like they couldn't overhand you that message. Like they couldn't like, you know, just put that on the silver platter any clearer. So it was meant to give you a break from this glim, this, you know, glim, this grim and bleak world. Um, Do you remember that script I wrote years ago, beast? Uh, are you talking about crucifixion? Yeah. The passion of the Christ for flesh. Yes. um so it was actually like can you imagine if jesus had pulled what superman pulled where when he came back from the dead he was pissed (laughs) (laughs) i mean i would be too you come back from the dead you look around and everybody's got crosses like what the is this all about like you you know that's how i died right uh, before yeah. that, it was a fish. What happened to the fish? Yeah, <laughs> you can feed people with a fish. What are you doing with a cross, Bob? <laughs> Nothing. Right. Uh, that was actually just from uh, Triana's yard. That's my bad. Right. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> All the letters fell down except the letter T. Right. <laughs> oh. mm. So, with that being said, uh, let's go ahead and take a moment to kind of wrap up this particular episode in light of the conversation that we just had. And RoboBob, I feel like you are the one to kind of really help uh, drive the nail in on this one. Well, thank you. Um, basically, we got to see Brock question himself uh, when he did the job he always does. And it did not turn out as expected. And he actually had to look his handiwork in the eye. Um, And his handiwork feared him and uh, declared he was bad. Um, Brock lost a lot and really had to go find himself again. But after that hero's journey into his own mind, he realized what his purpose was and he came out the other side. And like you said, when he did, um, you know, Venture Stein said it best when he said, Brock, good. And uh, that's what we're left with. And uh, Venture Stein knows it. The audience knows it. And Brock knows it. I mean, uh, really, bingo. That, that's it. Um, one of my favorite features of this episode Um, One of the newer trends in storytelling is your character has to be changed in some way, right? Like there's always an inherent continuity. And here we get the continuity of discovering, you know, the the clone lab with the boys and the slugs, which will become very, you know, pertinent later on, um, especially actually in the Brock block uh, as we, you know, cover a few more episodes. Uh, We're going to do 
the family that slays together um part one and two as a as a single episode and um so it's important in terms of that continuity but what i love about it is nothing changes about brock brock went through the cycle of like rinse wash repeat and came out the exact same dude and he was like i am me this is me i i accept who i am and because he came to his own acceptance brock good <laughs> how is that not a changed brock because the Brock unexamined... was the same. <laughs> the... Yeah, yeah. Well, but, I mean, but he's not because the as uh, the famous uh, Greek maxim, right? It was Socrates who said the unexamined life is not worth living. Brock has examined his life and decided that his life is worth living. Like the fact that he is able to still take joy in his broccoliness, right, does not mean that his character didn't develop. Like. He was confronted with the sobering truth that uh, maybe he was bad. See, that and what and... he was doing wasn't good enough. And then at the end, he has walked through the valley of darkness. Yay, but he was not afraid. See, you're coming at it from definitely a little bit more of a Western perspective. I'm definitely approaching it more from the idea of the uncarved block. Um, you know, the the uncarved brock the uncarved brock well, but i mean as, the, as they might say in japan <laughs> the uncarved brock but you need to still get some duct tape because that malacca is ripped um <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but no uh really like again you know it's like you said the unexamined life but we always assume that examination is going to process some sort of change what happens when you examine things and you look around and you're like no this is great perfect i don't need to change anything i'm good I mean, I'm going to be honest with you. I've never had that experience in my life. Every time I've had <laughs> right. that, I'm like, all right, let's take a look. Oh, well, we got to fix this. And that could probably be better. And we could probably improve these things. Nah, Brock was like, you know, I looked around in my soul. Uh, felt like I needed to, you know, do some some checking around in here. And everything's in order, come to find out. I'm reassured. Uh, you mean to tell me you've never walked into your kitchen Realize you've already cleaned it and been like, no, we're good. I'm going to bed. I've never, like, after I cleaned my kitchen, I don't forget that I cleaned my kitchen. Ah, but, like, you know, maybe a few hours have passed. Maybe the kids have been running around. You go back into your kitchen, and it is not a disaster. You're like, you know what? We're cool. Like, it doesn't have to be this major thing in that you are, uh, like, coming out as a different person, per se. Brock being himself is the resolution of the tension he was feeling throughout the, like the crux of the episode. That's exactly like, what I said. That darkness. Yeah. That darkness is like him coming out the same is his character progression. Well, yeah. but is it progression? When, when is it a progression? If there's like, all right, if we put the character points on like a novelty chart, the same way that like, you know, was it Tim Leary did, you know, right. If we put those chart, like, you know, if we do a, a pointed progression, it's a plateau. I mean, it literally is only a progression through time and space. <laughs> he had to test that, though. I mean, if the guy you killed comes back and tells you you're a bad guy, and then you didn't do the thing in killing him that you thought you did. Twice! So that's two strikes. Yeah, right. And then he, you know... 
he does question himself. And in that questioning, I mean, he was in a place of vulnerability there. Well, also, um... and he, he tried to hug the dolphin. <laughs> he tried to embrace the empathy and sweetness that humanity longs for. And ultimately, he found that was not in his core. Well, see, and I guess from a, a narrative standpoint, going to the quote-unquote Venture Brothers tropes, I see it as a subversion of expectation. And that's why I look at it as a zero-sum game. Um, okay. Is because, like, it's like, uh, once you've been through Orb, and you find out, like, <laughs> this amazing story was all for a paperweight, <laughs> you know, that's when I realized, like, that's that's part of the humor is like, you know, uh, the, the zero sum game of some, you know, characters not changing. Um, and that's what I, I loved there... about like Brock. Like, I mean, at the end of the day, you know, Brock didn't change. He's still going to go see his hookers. He's taking his new pal, you know, Vendor. And here's the thing, like, let's be honest about Brock. Uh, you know, government killing machine that he is, a dude that listens to that much Led Zeppelin is not going to have a hard time taking hallucinogens <laughs> <laughs> it didn't take a whole lot of cajoling it took a little bit right just a little bit he was curious he was like you know is this a jim jones thing yeah, <laughs> right. is this a jonetown <laughs> thing right uh which was you know another reference to like mind Don't control cult yeah. yeah um but at the same time like you know the way he talks about uh you know dissecting led zeppelin himself into some other episodes like no, yeah, I mean, he was already down to do some soul exploring. Like he had the natural predisposition for it to begin with. Uh, I've just realized what my favorite part of this episode, as it relates to Brock Sampson, actually is. Yeah, the angel and devil on his shoulders are a naked hunter gathers with big, beautiful tits. And a hot dolphin. <laughs> yep. Well, and uh, that's something we're going to touch on in our next episode. Um, I'm going to go through and we're going to do Assassin Annie 911. And that's where you get a little bit more of the relationship between him and Hunter and why the spiritual epiphany was such a big deal. Um, and we find out what the weather's like in Siberia. <laughs> uh uh, yeah and that's when uh also you you get into the more um practical aspects of his morality (laughs) the less uh you know existential ones and and some of like you know more of the bare bones of what makes this guy work like his version of foreplay is intense like (laughs) in the murder can he is like slaughtering ninjas for foreplay uh, you know, here, like, you know, in, in, in Assassin 9 you see some pretty crazy, hot and steamy, but ultra-violent scenes between him and uh, Molotov. Molotov. Yeah, well, we will have to save that for next episode. Conjectural Technologies is hosted, researched, and produced by Professor Brock Savage, Beast LaMode, and Robobob. Additional research provided by associate producer Audrey Hartburn. Audio engineering by Brickfrog. Reach out to us on Twitter 
at conjecttech underscore pod or by email at conjecturaltechpodcast at gmail.com. Special thanks to Jackson Public and Doc Hammer, without whom we would not be here. And as always, thanks for listening, and go Team Venture!